Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Pamela Petro. She is an author, artist, and educator living in Northampton, Massachusetts with her partner, Marguerite, and Pembroke Welsh Corgi, Topaz. She has written four books of creative nonfiction, including her latest, The Longfield, Wales and the Presence of Absence, a memoir, as well as Travels in an Old Tongue, also about Wales, Sitting Up with the Dead about the American South, and The Slow Breath of Stone about Southwest France. Her articles and essays have appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, The Sunday Telegraph, The Atlantic, Granta, Guernica, The Paris Review, and others. The Longfield was shortlisted for the Wales Book of the Year Award and was named to top 10 travel book lists by the Financial Times and the Sunday Telegraph. Pamela teaches creative writing at Smith College and on Lesley University's MFA in Creative Writing program and is co-director of the Dylan Thomas Summer School at the University of Wales, Trinity St. David's, where she is also a fellow. She has widely exhibited her photography and has also created an artist book, After Shadows, a Grand Canyon narrative and a graphic script under Paradise Valley. Welcome, Pamela. Thank you, Ronnie. Thank you so much. I'm oh. delighted to be here. What a what a lot of stuff. <laughs> and I bet you that's your short bio too. Is well, it? It, it is, but it makes me tired hearing it all. Tell you the truth. <laughs> I was actually going to make a joke as I was reading it. Uh, you know, just like I'm exhausted already, but it's, <laughs> I, I don't want to interrupt anyone's bio ever because we work hard for those credits. And we do. It's, yeah, it's quite impressive. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, it's quite impressive. And so I'm so eager to get into our conversation about this latest book, but all things writing. And so for anyone who has not yet seen your book, can you please share a little bit about your most recent, The Longfield? Thank you. And I just want to thank you for having me on. It is, it really is a delight. The Longfield, it's a, I don't want to say it's about whales because it's not a travel book about whales. And when I, I should say this, when I'm in the States, I have to qualify. I mean the country next to England, mm -hmm. not the big mammal in the sea. <laughs> yes, which you actually begin the book with a nice sketch of a whale. That That is a prologue for the American edition. We didn't have to do that in Britain. Is that right? Mm. The, yeah. the publisher wanted to specify which whales are we talking about here. Oh my gosh, you must wonder, we must wonder then collectively how smart Americans seem oh. if they can't figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> they did. I think people do wonder. So the book is, it's about my love for whales. It's about how I, I think I, I grew into a, I, I call myself into a person who's more than American and less than Welsh over an almost 40 year relationship with this place. Mm -hmm. And it's about the Welsh word hiraith and how hiraith describes whales, how it describes my life, and how it describes the, the creative experience. Mm. Yes, and you know, I'm so glad you said the word because I was going to attempt <laughs> it. I practiced it because you, you write it out in the book, you know, phonetically. We practiced your name and we should have practiced hiraith as well. <laughs> Wait, let me say it, hiraith. A kind right. of, right? It was yes. not terrible. Um, no, it's great. You, yeah, you write that it's a famously, it's a word that's famously hard to translate, has long field as one of its meanings, but is also so much more. And 
I, I want to know more about the feeling and the magnitude of what this means and, and how you discovered that in Wales and, and what about that in this book was important for you to convey. That is a great multi-part question. <laughs> yeah, well, have at it. <laughs> All right. First, to define hiraith, which is really hard to do because it doesn't translate into English. It only translates into Portuguese as saudade of all the mm. world's 7,000 languages. What it means is the subtitle of the book, uh, The Presence of Absence. It's being aware in the present moment in your life that something important is missing, that you feel incomplete because perhaps you've left something behind. And that could be a home. It could be a community of people who made you feel at home. It could be a former self. It could be a younger self in whose skin you felt more yourself. Mm -hmm. Or perhaps it's something that is always receding as you, as you get close to it in the future that you can't quite grasp. Uh, there, Hiraith takes lots of forms, but I think it boils down to this idea of the presence of absence. And in, mm -hmm. in Wales, the, the the kind of shorthand for it in, in my imagination is King Arthur, the myth of King Arthur, who may or may not have been a real person in the, the fifth century. But he, the myth says he lived in the past and was a great hero for the Welsh fighting the Saxons and that he'll come again in the future. He's sleeping on the Isle of mm -hmm. Avalon and he'll come back at the moment of Wales' greatest need. So he lives in the past, he lives in the future, but he can never, ever be in the present. That's mm. the impossibility, the yearning, the sense of incompleteness of Hiraith. And that is something you discovered while you were there, or was it that you'd had that feeling before and then there was a word for it, a name for it? That's a really great question. What I discovered in Wales was a different word, which is Kinevan. It's the, another Welsh word that you can't translate. <laughs> but I had um, grown up in New Jersey and never really felt at home there. It was just a very built environment that I could never see through to the natural world beneath it. It was suburbia of mm -hmm. housing tracks and, and shopping malls and strip malls and highways. And in that cluttered landscape, I couldn't find the past either beyond mm. the 20th century. There was no sense of the indigenous people who came before. And I couldn't have told you that when I was growing up in, in a lovely town in, in New Jersey, but I was always uneasy. And mm. I got to Wales to go to a graduate program that had nothing to do with Wales or any of this. It was a graduate program in word and image studies. And it was the only one like it. And that's how I wound up there. Mm -hmm. um, and it was in rural Wales. And I walked into this landscape that gave me everything I had always hoped for um, and couldn't have, couldn't have articulated. But I, would, I climbed a hill behind college, the college and saw hills, one hill receding into the next and how they fit together and the rivers that sculpted out the valleys between them. And I saw in this landscape that I could read almost like a map of the geology of this place. I saw the distant past, the megaliths back to the Stone Age. 
and I felt instantly at home. <laughs> and Kenevan means, it can mean um, a sense of a sheep passing on to her lamb, the part of the mountain that's hers. Or mm-hmm. it can mean when you walk into a place you've never been before and feel that this is your home, this is your soul's geography. And that's what I felt. And then I had to go back home, in quotes now, to New Jersey. That's when I think I really felt one sense of hiraith, that I had left behind the person Wales allowed me to be, a person with a greater perspective on deep time and on our human place on the earth and and all of that. Um, Mm -hmm. And now I was back in New Jersey dealing with what my family called Pam's Welsh thing. (laughs) (laughs) Which they must have been really surprised about. (laughs) They would, my aunt would call my mom and say, is Pam over that Welsh thing yet? (laughs) But that's what introduced. came from nowhere, right? I mean, there's no family connection, is there? No, there's no family connection. But um, it it impacted me so greatly that uh, when I had to leave, I learned, well, I've only learned this lately in writing the book, but there, there are many definitions of home in the dictionary. Dic- number one is the place someone lives permanently. Number four is the place where someone flourishes best. Mm-hmm. And after I went to Wales, those two things were not no longer the same place. Mm-hmm. And I was in this long field in between. And I've been there ever since. And... Long field, as you say, is one etymology of hiraith, long field. Mm. Um, and I've worked all this out by, <laughs> over the seven years it took to write the book. <laughs> right. So do you, do you have a lot of friends now that live in Wales? Do you, when you go there, did they seem to accept you as if you were from there now? Yes. In fact, uh, my previous book, Travels in an Old Tongue, about trying to learn Welsh by traveling around the world to different expat communities of Welsh speakers. I walked into a a, a woman's house in Delft in the Netherlands, and she had on her calendar, Welsh woman comes today. (laughs) And I was just ecstatic. (laughs) Thought I've made it. Wow. It's so it's so lovely to hear about such a passion. I don't know if it addled you at all, but it's so it's almost freeing for me to hear about a writer like you who is so deeply enmeshed in a place and a passion for a region and a people and a history. Thank thank you. I, I mean, I think it, it that was the landscape that got to me first. And then I had an experience where I hugely embarrassed myself that I was in the town of this small university where I went, of Lampeter in West Wales, in rural West Wales. And Lampeter is a word with no meaning. It's an anglicized word. Mm-hmm. But the Welsh name of Lampeter is Llanbedar Pont Stefan, which means Peter's Church at Stephen's Bridge. <laughs> and I learned that name. I, I embarrassed myself by saying, oh, Where's Llanbedar Pont Stefan to someone when I was in <laughs> Lampeter? Oh. Oh, the humiliation. 
that gave me a sense that language holds mysteries and images and pictures from the past. And if I learned more about this place, I could learn about the stories it had to offer as well. Mm -hmm. And that was a touchstone of learning the myths, the literature um, that's all embedded in the landscape. So mm -hmm. all of this is all woven together for me. So is it hard to not be there now? Oh, gosh, yeah. It is. Uh, my partner teaches at Smith College and is a tenured professor there of Portuguese and Brazilian studies. She's in the book. She, it, the book yes. is also <laughs> kind of a love story. But that is a practical reason that I don't live there. But also living in New England, we're sort of equidistant between Wales and Brazil. And mm. it just, we're kind of triangulating both of the places that we're passionate about. Mm -hmm. um, so, but when I go back, I drive, I rent a car often and I drive up the Tyvee River Valley. And I always ask myself the same question, which is I get to a certain point at a curve and I can see this, uh, I think I called it in the book, a murmuration of hills. And the greens, I just think, how can I live without the, those shades of green? Mm -hmm. And it's a puzzle to me, but somehow I manage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just have an image of, of Wales in my mind, a little bit from the book and then from little images I've seen here and there. So I have just a smattering of the feeling of what it must look like. And I, I imagine it's beyond stunning and how nourishing almost it would be, how good for your eyes too it would be. Yes, and it is. It's a it's a beautiful place, and it's it's a poor place, and I think the idea of using hiraith as a a kind of lens through which to look at Wales and myself brings out to to readers the reality as well as the beauty um, that this is a place that has struggled. This was the first colony of the English Empire in twelve eighty two. This is a place whose language was outlawed as an official mm -hmm. language in the UK, and it wasn't reinstated. It was outlawed under Henry VIII, not reinstated until 1993. Mm -hmm. And we're going to actually talk about that. Maybe that's a good place to go right now. Do you happen to have a copy of your book? I happen to have it right here. <laughs> let's let's talk about the Welsh knot. I don't know if you feel like you need to set anything up, but it's on page 94 in my right. copy. And if you want to just talk about Welsh knot a little bit, I think that would be really interesting. Sure. I'll I'll read this and I'll just say that one of the aspects of Hiraith that the form of the book is a braid and mm -hmm. each chapter braids an essential Hiraith story from my life or a universal aspect of Hiraith with a story from Wales. And this one chapter um, talks about language and only 25% of Welsh people in Wales speak Welsh. And so there is a Hiraith on the English speakers who, are, who live in a country where they cannot speak their mother tongue. Mm -hmm. And there's also a Hiraith on the Welsh speakers who are speaking a minority language in the place that gave rise to that language. Hmm. Um, one of the reasons it's, it's become a minority language is that the British government tried to stamp it out starting in the 19th century. And one of the techniques they used was the Welsh knot 
which uh, was imposed upon school children up until I went to a hotel a couple years ago and the man who who splatted the eggs on my plate <laughs> somehow we started talking about it and he said his mother in the 1950s had to wear the Welsh knot mm. so it's not something from the distant past okay I'll read this God help you if you were a school child in Wales in the latter half of the 19th century into the early decades of the 20th and it was raining hard outside Maybe you turned to a friend and pointed out the window, whispering, Mein buru heino ragatha fin. And you both giggled, because under any circumstances, it's a funny idea. And what that means is, it's raining old women in sticks. It's kind of our <laughs> cats and dogs. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love that. But say the boy at the next desk overheard you, and the light was already dimming from the rain, and it was getting on toward the end of the day. And the boy raised his hand and told the teacher. And then no one else was heard speaking Welsh before it was time to go home. Then you would have been brought to the front of the classroom and beaten, probably with a cane. Because by that point, you would have been the last student that day to wear a piece of wood on a string around your neck printed with the initials WN. Welsh not. And it, it goes on after mm -hmm. that. Um, it was really, I don't know why it should surprise me when people do things like this all the time, but it really did surprise me and sadden me to hear, to read about that. I think it's such a visual image and it's mm -hmm. an image of children being so unjustly punished. Mm -hmm. And it just tears at my heart. Mm -hmm. this, it really, really does. Um, and it's one of the reasons I wanted to learn Welsh. It's, I think I say in the book, learning Welsh isn't just a whim, it's a, a political statement in favor mm -hmm. of a minority language in a minority country. Mm -hmm. So that's that's just really important to me. Although my yes. Welsh is terrible, I, I will say. Um, I, I don't know why, I'm, I don't believe you. Oh, uh, it I, is. I'm, it's... I'm not an authority at all, but I don't want to believe you. <laughs> Well, thank you. I'll take it. <laughs> I don't. I don't feel like anything you do is going to be terrible. Oh, uh, you're I, so kind. I, I do want to talk about the braid. I was curious yes. about that because you you do employ different kinds of writing here, and you describe the long field I saw on your site as memoir, hybrid, and creative nonfiction. And I'm curious when you began writing this book uh, many years ago, if you had the sense of what form it would take. And if you want to talk a little bit about the idea of hybrid and creative nonfiction versus whatever we would say is plain nonfiction or just nonfiction rather than creative nonfiction. Great, great. That's I love that question. That's a writer's question. <laughs> <laughs> you found me out. <laughs> I had no idea how to write this book. I, I, I just sat at my desk in the fall of 2012 and I'd cry and I'd pull my hair and I'd make charts and nothing made sense. And I, I honestly, I knew there were th certain things I wanted to say. I wanted to use Hiraith as this, this emotion, this experience that's essentially Welsh, yet also a universal human experience. I, but I, at that point, I did not want to use memoir. I thought, I'll use Hiraith to introduce Wales to Americans. What mm -hmm. could be a better idea? And I'd start off letters to agents saying, I want to write a book about an idea. 
<laughs> and I'd hear back if I heard back saying, this is a terrible premise. Oh, <laughs> go away. <laughs> Americans don't want to read about ideas and they don't want to read about a place they don't know. Wow. And okay, that I was discouraged, but people kept saying friends, I would start to write the book um, and show it to friends. And they'd say, you need to put yourself in it. And I, mm. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do it. I wrote three different iterations of this before I finally found the right route. And it was, there's a story in the book about how it came to be, but I woke up one day and realized I was absent from mm. a book about absence. And <laughs> if this was a universal human, human emotion, I needed to write my life into it, not just my life in Wales, but I needed to write about the hiraith of being a daughter of, of parents with dementia, of being um, a traveler nearly killed in an Amtrak train crash, mm. of being a gay woman mm. and in that minority experience and, and other things. So I wrote an essay called Coincidence um, for, for the Harvard Review in 2017 as a start to writing this book, be, uh, because I teach at Smith and Leslie in the spring, I really only worked on the book primarily in the fall. So in August, to get my, my writing guns going, I wrote this essay, and it was a braided essay about uncanny experiences around my parents' deaths. And it, it was it's great, it's full of like near ghost stories. Mm. But it was braided, and I thought, oh, am I doing this subconsciously? Because I need to, to work on this braiding idea. And I started then braiding my life, my experiences into Wales Hiraith experiences, opening up as the book went on into human experiences um, about, oh, even technology, how we feel Hiraith through technology. And that turned the book into a research. There's research nonfiction. Um, I yes. tell the story about Robert Record, who was a Welshman in the 16th century who invented the equal sign. <laughs> and that's someone I didn't know uh, before I did this. It draws, it became the most personal thing I've ever written in my life, which is ironic as I started out not wanting it to be memoir. Yeah. And it's also, uh, I realized at the same time, or, well, maybe 2016, that I needed to have a present moment in Wales rather than just my youth as a graduate student. I needed to be an adult. Having experiences like hiking Snowdon, the, the tallest mountain in England and Wales, um, so all of this had to be braided in some way together. Mm -hmm. And I had to figure that out. Uh, so it became a kind of juggling act. And I think that uh, my premise to my students, my writing students, is you learn writing when you teach it or when you consider someone else's work, more so than when someone considers your own. And mm -hmm. I think I taught my way 
into writing this book. I became a better writer. I became the person who could write this book by teaching students and mm. really giving myself to their work, learning how to make their work better because then your ego is not involved. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. all of this, uh, the, the process of teaching and braiding and writing um, took from 2012 to 2020. Do you know uh, why you were resisting memoir? Why? Uh, <laughs> you can, this is a safe space. <laughs> you can tell the truth. Why was I resisting memoir? I had written a series of memoir essays, like from 2010 into 2013 for the Paris Review. And I felt like I had said a lot about myself, you know, you get sick of the pronoun I. <laughs> yeah. And I just mm-hmm. wanted to reach beyond myself and and write about whales through Hiraith. Um, but it became bigger than that. And I think it became a better book when I brought in this sort of universal human experience. And I I was the one who had the raw material for that. Right, of course. <laughs> but you know what's What's so hard to me, I mean, I really, I really get intimidated by the idea. I'm sure if I really tried, I could do it. But the idea of incorporating so much material, so much factual material and history into a book, Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess maybe it's not as hard as I presume it would be. It just seems like such a responsibility. It is. It is. And you, you want to be sure that you're presenting it. Um, in a in a light that doesn't skew things too much. I mean, everything is going to be skewed to some extent. When your book is so rooted in place and history, I feel like I would. Did you have a lot of a lot of uh, readers on this or people to check? Did you have? Did your publisher double check things, or was that all on you? Um, it was it was mostly on me. I had some readers checking. I had. As you noted before, all the the Welsh words or Welsh names, are, I write out phonetically um, for readers who don't know, mm. and as most people don't, why would they? And I certainly had help with with that kind of thing. Um, I I've read so much about Wales that a lot of this was familiar to me, and so I had to fact check. But um, the the Hirai stories I tell the flooding of the Truerin Reservoir, which was something that happened in 1965 uh, when a Welsh-speaking valley in the National Park of Snowdonia in North Wales um, was chosen by the the Liverpool Corporation, which was a, a body charged with finding new water for the city of Liverpool. And they selected that valley and flooded it and it was a Welsh-speaking valley. And that was a nail in the coffin to language in that part of the country. Mm-hmm. And all those people were kicked out. Um, that was a very colonial act. Mm-hmm. Um, that is one of the Hiraith stories that reverberates today in the rallying cry, Kovich Drewerin, remember Trewerin. And that is written on walls all over Wales. Mm. Um, so I knew that. That was something I couldn't be familiar with Wales and not know. So a lot of this was at my fingertips, but I had to research to go deeper. Having a toehold in, in the present 
and also describing some of my early experiences on the, the summer school gave me a chance to write description, mm-hmm. um, landscape description. And that is one of my favorite things <laughs> as a writer. Yeah, I was actually hoping, I'm going to have you read this excerpt in a moment, but I, and this is a very, I'm asking you a big question, but I know that you're prepared for it, so I'm going to (laughs) ask Uh it. Do you think that with words, writers can adequately convey that which we feel very deeply, what we long for? Uh, Uh Can we we bridge uh, the space between us and others in ways that satisfy What a good question. What a good question. And what a good question to ask about this book, because we have to try is the answer. That's what the quest of writing, to try to bridge that gap. We write to to bring minds together across space and time. We will never entirely say, find words to say exactly what we feel or what we've experienced. But that's Hiraith, right? There's mm-hmm. always a long field that stretches between what I felt when I was 23, standing on an ed- the edge of a field at twilight, feeling something intense, but having no words for it. And then at 53, trying to, to write that, to translate that into words. They will never line up. Mm. But, but it's a kind of translation. And the great poet, Welsh poet R.S. Thomas, said of translation, it's like kissing through a handkerchief. <laughs> and I love that. Yeah. So it's, it's, there's the handkerchief, but it's still kissing. And that's how I feel about this attempt of words to describe experience. Mm-hmm. It's not going to ever line up exactly. And it's a Hiraith experience. There mm-hmm. isn't a space, that emotion of separation is there, but we try and we get darn close. Mm-hmm. And that section I chose, which was not easy, but I thought it would be a nice introduction because it is the prologue. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you would like to read it, that would be wonderful. Lovely. I would love to. Thank you. Okay. So this is the first page of the British edition It does that doesn't have the preface. And it's the prologue, and it's called Kinevan. In the beginning, the sky had more to offer. That's where the action was, in the chaotic skyscape of West Wales. Cumulus banks dazzling as airborne glaciers. Sleek gray clouds prowling the horizon. Cirrus feathers dusting the dome of the sky. They were all up there, together, all at once, bumping into each other, making the days go bright dark, bright dark, bright dark, turning fields from chartreuse to muddy jade and back again in an instant. When I was a kid, I didn't believe clouds moved. I'd try to catch them in the act, but they never seemed to budge. Maybe I just never sat still. I believed that some days were cloudy and some were sunny, and that was that. The clouds would be fixed in place until the sun burned them away. As a teenager, I dismissed the sky. It couldn't get me a date or into college, so there was no point in it. But then at 23, I went to Wales, and that's when the clouds rushed into motion. I soon learned there was nothing in Wales I could dismiss or take for granted. Not the sky, 
not my nationality, not my language, not my sexuality, not my home, not my past, not my future. At the late age of 23, everything flew up for grabs. My hair even curled for the first time. At home in the States, it was straight edge, but in Wales, one of the wettest parts of Great Britain, where moisture saturates every molecule, my hair had been taking the long way to my shoulders. Hair is hygroscopic. It's capable of absorbing moisture from the air, but it absorbs moisture unevenly. The heavier, damper strands lengthen and lighten, and the drier ones don't. The result is a mass of S-curves and corrugated locks. Cause and effect, whales acted on my hair and it changed. My psyche wasn't so much hygroscopic as, quote, enviroscopic, a word I made up. Everything in my new environment, from the rough consonants and windy vowels of Welsh to the beer-soaked, fermenting set, scent of time past and passing in pubs, acted on me and I changed too. So did the place my soul called home and the understanding of what home might be or mean. That first year, I was giddily enchanted by every new thing I encountered in Wales, whether Welsh or not. Some things made sense. Mooley graters, tomato paste in a tube, Wellington boots, marching for nuclear disarmament. Some things, upon reflection, did not. Baths in ice-cold cast-iron tubs, especially in preference to perfectly workable showers. A general disregard for central heating, televised darts matches, more than one wallpaper print in a single room. Emblems of the Welsh countryside were what I most took to heart. Fat slugs, thumb thick and licorice black. That sounds like something Dylan Thomas would write. Oozing across country lanes at night to die under car wheels at daybreak. Round-shouldered bottles of milk delivered with slate chips on top to keep magpies from pecking their foil caps. Fine mists cast like fishnets on the breeze. Lichen growing on foundations, rocks, trees, anything that would sit still, weaving patience into my busy American perspective. Bilingual signs, the Welsh words still scribbled to me, reminding me I was a foreigner in this place. The red dragon of Wales, brazenly flying out of a fabulous past on 20th century flags, no matter what direction the wind was blowing. Above all, I was intrigued by the new, viscous quality of my life, a, scent that, a sense that clings still to my memories of those Welsh days, which have neither the solidity of experience nor the fluidity of dreams. There you go. Thank you. Oh, thank you. So your language knocks me off of my feet, and I really want to know what your writing process is like. Do you... How do you approach first drafts when it comes to language and content and syntax? And what do you as a writer these days notice you have to pay more attention to in revision? Oh, gosh, another excellent question. Okay, I'm, I'm going to admit <laughs> this. I am not a big reviser. Ooh, intrigue. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, are you telling me it comes out this way? Uh, oh my it, gosh, you are. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I revise more for meaning than for language. I will, like in this this section I just read, 
I went back and pushed on parts. They, I, I tell my, that's, that's the language I use to, to say I worked harder. Like the idea of hair being hygroscopic. I wanted to write about my hair, but I wanted to, I wanted to call attention to it in a way that people didn't expect. So I looked that up. I mean, that's something I went mm -hmm. back and added right. um, to get those nuggets, those little moments of interest in the text. That's something I did. The language itself, I polished it a little bit, but it's pretty much how it, how it came out. I think of, I'm fascinated by the puzzle of language, like how I, I see it, the words as putting a puzzle together to create pictures or build ideas. Mm -hmm. And I, I revised, like I wrote this book essentially three times, but the language doesn't change all that much. The, mm -hmm. I, the ideas go deeper over time, things get shifted around, but the language often stays pretty, pretty much as it comes out. Mm. So is that sort of an impulse you feel to create the impetus to write is driving you and that's how it comes out? It's such a good question. I think the, that process that so many people go back and just get something down and, and then go back and revise the language. It's happening in my head, I think, mm -hmm. that the, that revision is going on, looking for the word and the search for the right word is what then drives the meaning. Mm -hmm. um, so those things are, are so intricately bound up. There is one, this is something I bug my students about. They'll say, oh, I couldn't get anything into you because I was not inspired. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just want to take a stick to people like the Welsh knot. You don't. Inspiration is not something that visits you. It's something that you kindle. Yeah. And writing is what drives it. Most yeah. of this book is just the language is driven from hard work, except for one page where I think I really, I, I really had that inspiration visit me. And it's about traveling to the Brecon, driving to the Brecon Beacons and going for a walk. And this, these ideas about my blood being pulled to high tide by the hills mm -hmm. just came in a, in a torrent. And it's the only place in the whole book that mm -hmm. that happened. But that is the place that writing students always go to. You mentioned home and the descriptions, definitions of home. And I was going to ask you what you've come to understand about place and belonging and do with that whatever you wish. I don't know if that means home to you or not. But after these travels to Wales and, and, and being in this position in your life now where you say you live between basically three places or one place in between two others all the time, mm -hmm. what have you come to understand about place and belonging? <laughs> uh, see my book no um, <laughs> I think I think there's always more to place than we think and that every place has meaning for us I think often our travels are driven by this longing for belonging I, I think that Hiraith that often has takes the expression of place and there are so many, we need the word hiraith in America so badly um, because we're a land of immigrants. So mm. many people feel that they, their real, in quotes, home is from is someplace else. 
a friend of mine who's American, her mother is American, her grandfather's American, her great grandfather came from Italy. That family is still telling the great grandfather's stories about the village they all really belong to, which mm. they all fully believe, which ceased to exist 80 years ago. It became a, a the idyllic village became an industrial suburb of Naples. Mm. But they still believe in that. So I think everything we do in a way, especially in our country maybe, is this longing for belonging. But what I would say about place is uh, Robert McFarlane wrote a book called The Old Ways. And I tell my students, especially on the Dylan Thomas Summer School in Wales, I use two quotes from him, from Robert McFarlane from that book. And he talks about, he asks two questions. One is, what do I know when I am in this place that I can know no, nowhere else? And two, what does this place know of me that I can't know of myself? Wow. And I think if we ask those questions wherever we are, that will establish the importance of place and the being driven by this sense of belonging. And mm -hmm. I think those two questions are really great tools to, to dig in that subject. Yeah, and also it, it brought to mind sort of a permeability to me. Yes, that, absolutely. Yeah, that idea that we leave an impression and places leave impressions on us and everything is fluid in that way. And oh, that's absolutely. such a good time to write. That's such a good place to write from. I wanted to ask you, I, I'm about to ask you my closing questions, but sure. you said something of, a little while ago. You said deep time. Mm. And I was wondering about that because it's it's just a beautiful term mm. is and that yours or is that a what is it's that? the it's scientist term for geological time mm. deep time mm -hmm. um and i love to think about as we we traverse across in space across the earth from place to place there's always another coordinate that goes down <laughs> passed through human history into the history of the earth and that history of the earth, the deep time history, also affects everything we do, everywhere we are, that, that geology matters. And I think that's what I was searching for in New Jersey. I, I wanted that to, be, to mm -hmm. matter in my life. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I didn't know that as a kid, but I discovered it in Wales. Yeah, you found it. So what advice would you give to writers working on memoirs, even though you were you did not want to write a memoir? <laughs> <laughs> I would say I would say push. Push like you're having a baby. Just push harder than you thought you you could on each scene, each each point you want to make each intersection of your life with another person's life or your life in place it's coming to you it's there because it matters for a reason that there's a reason in it and push on those intersections and see why you're remembering them and and just keep asking questions like like mm -hmm. Robert McFarlane's question what can I know here I can't wear, know anywhere else and I think the the more you do that you find answers you never thought even to ask, that you you didn't even know the questions existed. And you mm. just have to keep pushing. I think the one thing I say to most of my students over and over again is not so much about structure or language. It's about 
why are you saying that? Why are you telling me this? Why? Mm-hmm. Push mm-hmm. deeper. And I think memoir just will open up and, you know, we write memoir to understand ourselves. I couldn't have told you any of these things back in 2012 about this book. That It's the writing of the book that teaches you the mm-hmm. answers. Mm-hmm. And you don't even sometimes know those questions at the beginning. So push like you're having a baby, I say. <laughs> <laughs> and are there are there books or memoirs you recommend that that have been helpful to you as you created this book? That's such a good question. I'm going to go all the way back to to a book from 1996 called The Architect of Desire, and the subtitle is Beauty and Danger in the Stanford White Family, and it's by Susanna Lessard. That book was the first one I read that really wrapped a very personal first-person memoir around a larger subject, which was Mm -hmm. Susanna Lessard is the granddaughter of, or the great-granddaughter of Stanford White, the Gilded Age architect. Mm -hmm. And some of the decisions he made, the very poor decisions, echo down his family. And she talks, she wraps architecture and the Gilded Age and the family around her own story. And that blew me away that you Mm -hmm. could do all that. And Mm -hmm. she writes so beautifully and discovers, you feel those discoveries fresh on the page in that book. And that's what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And it took me a long, long time (laughs) to get to do it. Yeah, well, that's, I had not read that book. So I'll put that in the show notes along with a link to where people can find you. What's the best place? Oh, great. There's my website and you can get in touch with me through that. And it's just www.pamelapetro.com. You can also message me on Facebook, just as Pamela Petro. Instagram, I am Petro Pamela. And you can direct (laughs) message me there. And yeah, that's, or can I, should I give my email? Is that okay? If you want to, sure. It's up to you. Um, (laughs) Get in touch. Why not? Get in touch. Go through ppetro at smith.edu. Great. Well, this was lovely and we really only scratched the surface, but it was wonderful and exceeded my expectations of how far we would go in this conversation. And I want to thank you so much for your reflections and for shining a light on this beautiful place and your work. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's really, it, uh, it's my place to thank you. You just asked the most wonderful questions. And I felt like I was just sitting here chatting with a friend and I loved it. Oh, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.